Greetings, I am your host, Tina Clark, and welcome to the second season of my Weirdest Experience podcast. This is the show of the weirdest experience that has ever happened to you and gives you a venue to fully express yourself and share your weirdest story with the world. This is the No Judgment Zone, a safe place to share your experience. And it's also a place where we discuss what happened to you and share some possible theories on what and why this happened. If you would like to be on the show, email me at contactstargazingangel at gmail.com. Hey everyone, welcome to the show. I have Louisa Peck here today. She has been clean and sober for 26 years, and she's the author of the book, A Spiritual Evolution which is an autobiography, and she is also a near-death experiencer. Welcome to the show, Louisa. Thanks so much for having me, Tina. So we were chit-chatting before I pressed record, and Louisa was so prepared. She had a list of all her weird experiences, (laughs) so we were going through those, but I thought we would start with her near-death experience, and we'll see what we end up talking about. She also wanted to talk about her past life regression experience. So we can do that too. Sounds good. Okay. Well, I guess um, before I talk about the near-death experience, I have to talk about who I was when I had it. So I was 22 years old. I often say 21, but I was actually 22 years old living in New York City. And I had um, grown up in a resentfully atheist family. My father had had Catholicism forced on him and he was angry about it. And so it was not only, you know, an atheist family, it was a, I guess you just say sort of, um, oh, what's the word you use for when people are evangelistically atheists? Oh, wow. (laughs) We wanted everybody to be atheist, you know? And um, and so I, being a good daughter, I, I took philosophy classes. I wrote many proofs that there is no God. My thesis uh, in English was about the death of God in British literature at the uh, end of the Victorian era. And so that's where I was. And I, I really didn't know what to do with my life. And I just drank and drank and, and chased people who had cocaine and snorted lots of it. And um, So living in Manhattan, because that's where the action was, (laughs) according to my values at that time. And uh, so I went out on a date with a Coke dealer, uh, whom I was dating particularly because he was a Coke dealer. Um, He was actually a friend. We were in that kind of not quite dating it didn't ever date after this thing happened. I'll tell you that. So anyway, we did all his cocaine. We did a bunch in the, you know, taxi. We did it very blatantly, you know, and then we went in the uh, peppermint lounge and I was really stoked with the peppermint lounge, but we ran out of cocaine and I wanted to keep riding this trajectory of being high, feeling glamorous, feeling cool, all of these things that I was feeling there. So I wanted more cocaine. So did he. So we pulled together all the cash we had. And I think it was like 50 bucks. And we bought what we thought was a little baggie of Coke, but it was actually 
lidocaine. I went for many years thinking my NDE was caused by a cardiac arrest from too much cocaine. But after I got sober, all of my friends uh, were former drug dealers, or not all of them, but a lot of them. And they said in the 80s, we cut cocaine with lidocaine. Somebody sold you pure lidocaine because when we tried snorting it, it did nothing. And so we tried snorting some more and it did nothing. It, it, it would, had numbed our gums when, before we bought it. That's what we always did in those days to check, you know. And so my date said, this stuff is worthless and I'm not doing anymore. And he, you know, threw down his, his straw and I said, well, I'll just do it all. And maybe that way I'll get a little bit high. So I snorted the whole pile and um, lidocaine, when you take it systemically, you know, it's an anesthetic usually used topically and it stops the nerve endings from reporting pain. And when you take it systemically, it just shuts down the central nervous system and the autonomic nervous system. So the things that run your, your heart and your blood and I mean, your, your breathing and everything. Um, I began to feel, uh, I began just to get tunnel vision uh, and I began to feel like there was no air because my heart was slowing down and my brain wasn't getting enough blood. And I was waiting in the line in the to get to the bathroom. And I noticed my tunnel vision was getting smaller and smaller. And, and then when I finally got to the stall, I looked around and, and none of the graffiti inside the stall made sense. It was all gibberish. Um, it was as if I'd entered a bathroom where all the graffiti was in Arabic. And I thought something's wrong. Something's got to be wrong. And I came out, I found my date. I said, there's no air. There's no air in here. He was like, calm down, calm down. We'll get you a glass of water. He took me to the bar and I was feeling so frustrated that why did nobody else notice that no matter how much you breathe, there was no air. And uh, the bartender gave me a glass of water and I took it not because I wanted it but just to make him happy just to you know do what he was trying he was trying to be kind and he handed me this and when I touched it to my lips everything went blank and the last thing I felt was felt like a, someone something had struck the bottom of my chin from underneath and I thought for a second that I had collapsed and hit my chin on the bar but then it felt more like I had gotten a Popeye punch, you know, that makes you fly up in the air. And so it was like I'd gotten shot from a cannon and I went up, like out of the club, up into the air above uh, Manhattan. And I had one thought of I'm leaving all that nonsense behind, like that whole kind of nonsense game I was playing down there. I'm so glad I'm leaving that behind. And I shot up into a clear blue sky and it brought me huge joy, the light, the blueness, the, the freedom. And I thought to myself, I bet I can do a back bend and do a swan dive. <laughs> Sorry about the dog. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, I, I was a ballet dancer and I thought that I could do this and I did it and it brought me huge satisfaction. And then I saw I was above the ocean and it, ocean was way down there. And I had the passing thought, oh, you know, isn't it like concrete if you hit water from a great height? But I had no fear. I just like, 
yeah, I think it is. Yeah. You know, and that's all I thought. Then I dove in, but instead I pierced it and I went shot way down into the ocean and the ocean was like, in this beautiful blue and the bubbles were coming up by me and I thought wow that surface is way up there I hope I can reach it and again no fear but then I was at the surface very quickly I looked and I saw a shoreline I wanted to be on the shore and I don't really remember any swimming I just the next thing I knew I was wading out of the waves because on the other side everything is in metaphor Everything is, I was, I had passed through several things and that was passing through the air, passing through the water, now passing to the shore. It was like layers of crossing over that I was going through. I know that now at the time, I just thought this is what's happening and it's great. And um, never occurred to me that I was dead and I had no memory of, very little memory of being Louisa. I had my same basic identity. I knew I was me but any of the events of my life I had no memory of um I saw down the beach um there was a mesa with an old blue weathered house on top of it and I wanted to get there so again instead of getting right to the house this time though I got to the bottom of the mesa and I found out that there were in my way all these big rocks on the beach and they were covered with this really gross slime that at the time I thought was rotten seaweed um, and possibly crap. I wasn't sure. It, it, I know it was absolutely repulsive, but I knew I couldn't reach the house unless I climbed through it. So I climbed and uh, I did reach the house, but unfortunately I lost my body somewhere along the way. <laughs> So again, this didn't seem to me that weird. What I was just annoyed that I wanted to enter the house in human form. I just, I wanted to walk into it. Instead, here I was just an inch above the door sill. I could see the worn door sill in perfect detail. And then I just crossed over anyway by my will. I was maybe an inch off the floor and I saw the floorboards in there were super worn and the way wood gets when it's worn where the harder parts of it stand out as these sort of ridges and the lower parts are eroded away and it's just almost kind of felt or powdery look to it and I understood that it was so worn like that because all my ancestors had crossed this same threshold and again, it's symbolic, but that's how I saw it. And I got this joy to know that I was going to join my ancestors. Now, in real life, I did not give a rat's ass about my ancestors. I did not know them. Um, I, there were some pictures around the house that were supposedly these people, but um, I grew up in an alcoholic family and there was a rift between my dad and all of his family and my mom's family had been very messed up too. So they just, family was, had no meaning for me. On the other side, it was everything. On the other side, it was like such an honor to come from this line of people and to be following the same path they had followed uh, into the afterlife. Um, I didn't really think about afterlife though. I have to say, I just, I sort of stopped at a certain point of wondering. I just thought, I want, I want to be with them. 
And I sensed my grandfather who I'd never met in life. I had only seen a picture of him in my dad's closet. My mom made my dad keep all his family pictures in his closet. But anyway, <laughs> I had seen him there and I didn't see him in this house, but I sensed him there and I sensed his like great anticipation that he would get to meet me, get to be with me. Um, there was supposed to be an armchair facing the uh, big picture window that looked out at the ocean. And I knew this and I felt gypped because it wasn't there. Where is it? And I'm too short. I'm too close to the ground. And I thought, all my ancestors got to look at that beautiful view. I want to see it. As soon as I thought, I want to see it, something began to pull me across that floor. And uh, it is hard, uh, kind of contradictory, but seemed to be pulling me by my sternum, by my heart, even though I didn't have a body. But there was this sense of I mean, you, you have a sense right now, just sitting where you are, of where your heart is. And imagine that that is getting pulled forward. So I went along the floor and now I was thinking, what is happening? Oh my God. And it felt really good though. And then up and then to my huge joy over the windowsill and out. And I was flying over the ocean and I was flying, the sun was setting now and it was making a dazzling rippling track across the ocean and I was zooming along that like it was a I don't know uh, like a like an airplane you know taking off or something like that and I was filled with such euphoria and the beauty around me was so intense and I remember having the thought the one thought back to my other life wait a minute is this a dream? How am I flying? This, this can't, is this real? And then this is the first time my angel ever spoke to me because I did not expect to be answered. I'm just, you're wondering stuff. You're not, <laughs> somebody answer this question, please. You know, but my angel answered and said more real than anything you've known. And uh, I was like, you're right. It is. <laughs> Should I go to pause it and I'll get my dog? Sure. So that was odd because I've never had an interruption while I was telling my story before. So it's a little bit like when you're telling your story, it's a needle on an LP and I've never lifted it before. But to continue. Um, so you're flying across the water. Yes. You have a thought. So yeah. the mind comes in all of a sudden and says, is this real? And then your guardian angel answers you. Yes, more real than anything you've known before. And so I, I knew that the angel was right. And that's about when I began to see that from my perspective, the sun was actually getting bigger. And I realized I was getting closer to it. Even though I was still over the ocean, it was growing bigger. And then it took up everything I could see and I thought, am I going to hit it? And I thought, if I hit it, I'm going to get burned up. Like that's, <laughs> but again, there was no fear. It was just like, huh, I wonder what's going to happen when I hit it. And instead of getting burned up, I passed through this filament. I could feel myself like pass through like a very fine gauze curtain to the inside of the sun. And then I was in the core of the sun and in the sun was the light the light that is uh, so typical of 
near-death experiences, and of which I had never heard in 1982. I had never heard of a near-death experience. I had never heard of the light, but I found myself surrounded by it, bathed in it, subsumed in it, uh, and it was a, a bath and a, a radiance of love that no one can describe because if we have a drop of it in our life, this was an ocean. If we have a lighter's worth of flame, this was the sun. I mean, it, it was so huge and it completely filled me. And I felt this joy and euphoria because um, I was a very insecure. Uh, I had been loved very conditionally growing up. I was constantly jumping through hoops, trying to get validation from other people. And it, of course that never works. You can't feel validation in your heart from other people, but this love from, from source was so powerful and I just felt completely fulfilled. And then I began to be aware that I was being held like a baby by some figure I could not see because the brilliance was too big, but this figure was much bigger than me. It, it was a, let's say if, if maybe a person 25 feet tall was holding you like an infant, that's it. Then I was this tiny point and, and it was pouring love into me. You're so loved, you're so loved. And it was for me specifically, it wasn't just like human, you're loved. It was like you, you are loved. And I was completely happy. And I don't know how much time it seemed, there wasn't really time. But then all of a sudden the parents said, uh, you can't stay, you're not finished. Or you're not finished, you can't stay. It both sort of at the same time and the light was gone. And we're talking from brilliant, blissful light to pitch darkness and a sense of dropping, a sense of falling. And I had like a, I, I refused. I said, no. And I became super, super, for angry and I felt like a little kid when you're going to throw a tantrum and you're just going to show that adult they can't do this to you and I I I just screamed with all my being no and the parent answered case closed you're you know you're already on your way and um I honestly think that this is a little tangent but I believe that because God wants us to have free will each of us is enclosed in this kind of godphobic sheath of energy that makes us like a single cell or a single, it, it, it keeps us distinct from source and a little bit from each other's energy. And in the course of passing back through that shell, back into my body, it's made of anger and fear. And, and I, so I have heard other NDEs where people say they get this rage right before they go back into their body. And I believe it's because you're passing through that. Um, uh, I can't think of the word, but, but uh, what do you call it for a cell when the membrane you're passing mm -hmm. through that membrane. Anyway. And then I was in pitch darkness. I had felt a little bit of fear, but I began to see these stick figures that were like chalk figures on the pitch black background. And they were animated chalk figures, but it was like a very low budget film 
where <laughs> they're swinging on swings and they're saying they're going on a teeter totter and they're saying these little rhymes back and forth to each other in these high voices. And I thought, well, I guess I just have to watch this until uh, until I get to go back to the light. And I had a sense like, yeah, but you're a little kid watching cartoons. Like, I'm just going to watch this. <laughs> and uh, so I was doing that, just hanging out, watching stick figures. And then one of them starts to get closer and he goes from being an outlined circle to having like a solid plate. And it's actually getting so close. I can't see the other figures. He's like, he's blocking my view of my show. And so I'm a little annoyed. And then he's asking me and he's instead of the nursery rhymes, he's saying, how many fingers? What is your name? And then I realized I was, as I say, back in the meat puppet. I remembered the whole ordeal of life. And it just seemed to me the most stupid, pointless thing in the world at that time. And it was as if somebody said to you, Tina, we're gonna enroll you in kindergarten and, and you are gonna be there for the next 60 years. And, and you're kid. and you're gonna deal with seven billion toddlers for the <laughs> no. for your entire lifetime. <laughs> you're in there and you get to do cut and paste and you get to play with blocks and you know, but <laughs> well, we're not letting you do anything else, you know. And and I I did not want it. And then I knew that he wanted, I was thinking the answers to him, but I knew that, oh yeah, he wants me to do that thing where and I thought of my tongue and my mouth as the garage downstairs I think I was sort of newly into my brain again and and so I knew there was something down there that I was supposed to manipulate and I was supposed to burp out these sounds and it just seemed like that is so primitive and I really like I can't I can't do this stuff anymore that's how I felt and and then but just to please him again because I am such a people pleaser I I burped out how many fingers and and what my name was I mean I spoke it and um then I realized I was drenched I was so wet so there's a huge puddle around me I hadn't like urinated because I had just been in the bathroom it was all sweat and I thought they had poured water on me uh in fact it had just sweat had poured out of me and I don't know if that's how God got the lidocaine out of me or if God just said there's no more lidocaine like I don't know how I went from it giving me a grand mal seizure I had bruises all over my head and the backs of my arms from the seizure and then I'd had cardiac arrest and then the bartender had known CPR and he had come out and done CPR on me. And his estimate was that I was gone for three minutes. So it, the date guy that I had been with thought it was much longer. Um, and, and my date had actually told him to stop because it didn't seem it was doing anything. Three minutes of, of unsuccessful CPR is a long time. And um, I didn't ever thank the bartender who saved my life. And if he ever sees this or hears, if he ever hears this podcast or anything, I, I would really love to thank him. If you were at the Peppermint Lounge and you were a bartender and you resuscitated a bratty 22-year-old girl, um, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but I was 
smoking cigarettes again. I wanted, you know, um, we were waiting for the ambulance and I was smoking and I didn't understand that the ambulance was for me. I was, it took me a while. And when I put that together, I said to my date, I don't want to go to the hospital. I didn't want my parents to find out. And I just had a fear of hospitals, particularly somehow in Manhattan, it seemed like a horrible place to go. And then he was a middle school teacher and he didn't want this on his record either. So we just jumped in a taxi and took off. And uh, I, I told my roommate about the story very scoffingly as though it were some kind of drug trip. And I thought, you know, on this drug trip, I thought I met I tried to convince myself that cocaine was a hallucinogenic and that I had somehow hallucinated all this, but I knew it was more than that. And when I had kind of my moment of truth sitting alone uh, in my bedroom and I just remember staring at this little coffee table and saying, that was not a dream. That was not a hallucination. And if that was real, there's a freaking God. And what are you going to do about that? And I was just like, can't, can't. For some reason, that meant I'd have to go to church and I'd have to be churchy and I'd have to like be Christian. And I, that's what I thought at that time. I didn't have a sense you could have a God that was outside the box of religion. And then I thought of uh, 2001, A Space Odyssey, when uh, Dave is shutting down the central computer, the more tubes he takes out, the more simplistic the computer becomes until it, he says, I'll sing you the first song I was ever taught. And, and Hal sings Daisy. It's a cool scene in the movie. But I thought that's what happened to my brain as it lost oxygen. It got simpler and simpler until all that was left was love. That I thought love is the last spark to go out. And that's why I, I experienced it as everything. And I knew that was bull. I knew it wasn't true, but I was like, that'll work. That's my story and I'm sticking to it. And I get to still be an atheist and I get to still keep chasing parties and I get to still try to be cool and glamorous and all these things. I don't want to change. And the thing that's so interesting to me is that, you know, sometimes when I tell people about my experience, I expect them to change. I expect them to say, oh, I guess there is another side and, and I guess we do live after our bodies die. And I guess, whereas with me, I lived it and I still wouldn't believe it. And then I have this list of weird things because my guardian angel wanted me to awaken and to know that the spirit world is real and that life is a part of a much bigger picture and was not going to let me stay, first of all, in my stupor of alcoholism. So I believe, I'll tell you just a couple of weird things that happened, and then we'll go into ones I've, I've not talked about much. But um, the first weird thing was that I saw a ghost very, very clearly on a beach in Gloucester and was planning a conversation with this person and then was very shocked when they didn't answer my greeting and turned around and looked back and couldn't see them anywhere and then there were no tracks but my own and I believe that when we pass back through that filament when we leave our bodies and then come back there's some flaw in whatever used to shield us from spiritual beings and and for whatever reason things lined up on the beach to that I could see the spirit who was 
obviously still grieving a ship that went down in Gloucester. Um, I knew ahead of time that my nephew was going to die. There's, again, some flaw in it where I was getting little messages from the future of my brother's grief for having lost his son. And I could feel that grief, even though the thing hadn't happened yet. Um, when I got sober, it was because my angel intervened. I was 34 years old. I was going to keggers. And I had reached the point where going to a kager, I worked for, at this point, I was a barista at the coolest espresso bar I could find in Olympia, Washington, and trying to be cool with all the other cool baristas there. And I would get to the keg, I would fill my beer cup, and I would go get in line again. Because by the time I finished my beer, I wanted to be back at this spigot and I drove home uh, there was one night I got particularly drunk I couldn't stand up anymore and my friends took away my keys and showed me to someone's bed in someone's house I don't know where it was but I know I as soon as they were gone I got up I've got the keys off the table where they'd left them and I ran out to my car and I couldn't find the ignition and I couldn't find the gear shift and I, anything but I just I drove and I lived quite a ways away on these winding country roads and I was bombing along at 80 miles an hour, cranking tunes, smoking cigarettes, being completely drunk. And I came to this uh, bridge over a railroad track and there were all the different diagonal reflector signs. There were a whole bunch of them because I was seeing more than double. I don't know how you can see more than double, but you can. And uh, I had no idea which one was the right way. And I at that point, this is the way alcoholism goes, I really didn't want to live anymore. And so I just gun through it, just not caring. And not, I, I came across on the other side. And when I got home, I got out of the car and I was too drunk to stand. So I was holding onto the door and of the car to, to stand. And it was a starry night. And I thought, I am such a badass when I drive drunk. And then it seemed to me my experience was that something shot from the stars down through me like lightning and into the ground. And it was like this bolt of energy. And it said, this is the last time I can help you. And you do know right from wrong and you can do better. And I had been writing in my journal for a while. There is no right. There is no wrong. It doesn't matter what you do because we're going to die anyway. So, you know, it's all a bunch of bull and I'm not going to try and I'm just going to whatever. And so Angel knew what I wrote in my journal. <laughs> of course. <laughs> and this is something in Al-Anon. This is very significant for people in Al-Anon. Angel drew a boundary and said, I am not going to help you anymore. And I knew that the angel was talking about the bridge. I knew that. And the whole drive home. And uh, I felt a lot of shame. Um, in the morning, all these memories were crystal clear. But the who had left the milk out overnight? Who had spilled oatmeal all over the stove? It was me. I don't, but I don't have any memories of that. Um, and I... I believe that when we are, when spirit is with us, it's a different kind of memory. It's why my near-death experience is so crystal clear. And it's why all of these weird things on my extensive list of weird things are crystal clear is because they are, the angel was with me.
So I'm going to move ahead into some stories that I haven't told. This is sort of a relationship between me and my angel. So can I ask some questions about your, your near-death experience? Sure. So you talked about the sticky rocks. Yeah. What do you think that means? Were you actually, like, I'm, I'm trying to think, were you actually by some rocks or were the rocks symbolic of something? They're symbolic of something. So I'm a full-fledged weirdo now and I, I belong, I'm a member of Seattle International Association of Near-Death Studies and I interview people mm-hmm. and I've heard many talks. And this was before I was pure enough to enter the house of my ancestors, I had to shed all the resentment, all the anger, all the pettiness, all of the just kind of darker side of myself. And and almost every NDE, I mean, one guy I heard he he, you know, he fell down this 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 gaping channel or tunnel or something and he could feel it getting pulled off him. He said it was like he was having scales pulled off his body. Um, another woman had to pass through a volcano and have them burned away, you know, which mm-hmm. didn't hurt. But, um, and other people, one woman I know of was covered with diarrhea. She had mm-hmm. a Jesus oriented NDE and Jesus was going to hug her and then just turned away and she realized she had diarrhea. <laughs> <laughs> so this was my, this was my version of that. Yeah, all the grossness yeah. about me. And and the fact that I decided I, I want to be up there enough that I will climb through this is sort of how I was purified. Oh, wow. So the, the house, did you recognize that house? Is that a house? And you just knew it was where your ancestors were. And it was very, I mean, it was, it was beautiful in the way of an old house. And it appeared again when my father was dying. And uh, when my father was dying, I was having his dreams and I was just, I was having very weird state while my dad was on his deathbed, unable to speak, but I saw the house again, but this time I was coming up from the water on a path and I encountered a woman who turned out was his mom. She, she was a woman in an apron and kind of like 1950s kind of clothing actually earlier 40s maybe and she said have you seen my little boy and I said yeah he's coming you know so Mm -hmm. she had come down from the house to look for him so it was the same freaking house it was pale blue with kind of white or cream uh, uh, molding and very old weather beaten paint so that's just my symbol for our house. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't know. But uh, the voice spoke to me and told me to uh, help my sister cross over. Um, but it also saved me twice from uh, car accidents. Once I was waiting at a light and the light turned green and the voice just said, don't go. And I waited, looked in the rear view. No one was behind me. Uh, and then a car came through the intersection where I would have been at about 100 miles an hour. Similar thing, about a year later, I'm driving and, and I want to change lanes, but I'm driving a Volkswagen bug that has no rear defrost and I can't see and it's a pouring rain and, and the voice says, don't, 
you can't change lanes. And I'm like, I'm going to miss my exit. I'm talking back. I'm arguing. (laughs) (laughs) And it says, do not move out of this lane. And so I'm like, God damn it. You know, and then this vacant bus came roaring past, completely inundated my little beetle with water that it threw up. And I saw in the back, it just said like out of service. And I could almost feel the angel being like, you see, you see what? And I was like, I'm sorry. I actually, I thanked it when it saved me from the first one. And I said, I'm sorry for the second one. And so now I'm starting to talk to it, but I still want to be an atheist. Like I'm talking to this thing that does these things, but I still want to be an atheist. So what ended up changing me was, this doesn't seem like the thing that would change you, but it was a a, a dream that then came true. So there's, there's kind of like three parts to this. The first one was that I, I dreamed that um, I was at my brother's house and they had a plant on the coffee table that was kind of a piney looking plant and there was this huge spider in it and I got very brave and I asked for a glass and I caught the spider in the glass and I looked down into the glass and the spider was just lying there on its back showing its belly and there were these many diamonds of beige and gray and sort of tan that were all interlocking and they made this beautiful pattern sort of reminded me of spirograph design centers or something like that and um the thought came diamonds of orderly precision and uh i was in the morning i told this to my partner and it turned out my partner was starting an affair on this very day, my relationship with my partner had begun at a time when I was staying with my brother. And this dream came to tell me that relationship was going to end. I didn't know that though. Um, I was getting my toddler ready to go to toddler co-op and I've got the diaper bag, I've got the baby, I've got everything and I'm just grabbing the keys and I look and in the computer room, right above my computer, there's this big black ping pong ball stuck to the ceiling. I'm like, what the heck is that big black ping pong ball? And I look and I'm like, couldn't be, just couldn't be. And it set my son down and I went in and it was the biggest spider I had ever seen in my life, curled up in this little ball right above my, where I sit to write. And so I thought, well, I was brave in the dream. I can be brave now. And I thought, that's That's kind of weird. And I looked at the spider and my soul said to the spider, why are you here? And the the spider said to my soul, I'm here for you. And the message was about courage because I was going to need a lot of courage to get through the events that were going to unfold in the next year. Anyway, I get this glass, I get the spider. It's so huge. I've got the thing on it. I'm like, I can't even let it go in my yard because I just don't want a spider this big in my yard. Couldn't squish it either because it just would have been like squishing a crab or something, you know? And and so (laughs) I ran to my neighbors (laughs) and I threw it in their bush and it turned out to be the same kind of needly juniper bush that there was in the dream. Mm -hmm. The spider just lay there on its back and showed me its belly. And there was the pattern and the thing came again, diamonds of orderly precision, but this time with the extra caveat, even the something as lowly as a spider's belly is all orchestrated by God. 
And so then I looked up and down the street and I was having all these weird thoughts, like, am I in some kind of game show? Is somebody playing a prank on me? But then how could they make me dream something? Like, am I a scientific study? Like, what? And then I realized my, my little boy, my toddler was still alone in the house. So I took one more look, like, is that really the same pattern? And then I was like, yes, it is. And as soon as I said that, the spider turned over and just went back into the bush. And, uh, and so I didn't know what to make of this. I had no idea what to make of it. I knew it was really, really weird. I felt completely scrambled. And then I got an invitation to the birthday party for a friend who I hadn't seen for about four years and I decided to go. And I have no idea why I decided to go because she lived across town. I was the only person who had a child, you know, my, my son was now about four and he was noisy. And anyway, I, I, I went go to this party. I didn't know anybody. Um, I'm like, why am I here? Why am I here? Why did I do this? And then the conversation turns to clairvoyance. And so I said, I had a clairvoyant dream once, but it's about something really dumb. It was just about a spider. And they're like, oh, tell it, tell it. So I told it. And then my friend who was turning, having her birthday said that that's not dumb at all. Um, that was a spirit messenger. And she got books out of her bookcase about spirit messengers. And, and she said, oh, the spider, that comes to tell you that one thread of life is going to be cut and you're going to start another thread of life. And she said, wasn't that when your partner, you know, had that affair and, and, you know, and when you broke up and I said, no, no, it wasn't. And when I got home, I realized that it happened when, when my partner met the person. And I also looked it up on the web and it said, are you not writing? Because I'd been in this codependent relationship and not writing. And it said, spider comes to tell you that you should be writing. And I was sitting in the chair underneath where the spider had been. Yeah. I looked up where the spider had been. And it seemed like I saw through the ceiling into outer space. And I just spoke to God. And I said, I know you're real. I know you're real. <laughs> I will never turn my back on you again. And I cried like I'm crying. I'm trying not to cry now. I just bawled. And, and I also knew that this moment would fade. And so I kind of pledged, like, even if no matter how my skeptical mind tries to trick me back into thinking you're not real, I know you are. And, and I really felt close to God in that moment. And I never did turn back. So that was back in like 2004 and I've been getting weirder and weirder ever since. <laughs> well, I have this book over here on this table. You ever seen this book, uh, animal spirit guides? No, I haven't seen that one. <laughs> yeah. Well, you can look up spiders and see what they say. Yeah. So, um, I practice shaman healing. So I'm always paying attention to what the animals are doing and what nature is doing. Cause mm -hmm. I always think, I, I believe they're all giving you a message. You know, they fly in front of you for a reason. You hear them for a reason. You see certain birds for a reason. So I actually have an app on my phone too, to look the animals up. Cause I'm like out and about, I'm like, oh, what does this mean? Cool. So let's look up what spider means. 
So this book is called Animal Spirit Guides by Stephen Farmer for the listeners. So if a spider shows up, it means this is an opportunity to access your deepest wisdom and assimilate it so that it becomes a part of your daily living. Beware of any potential traps or ruses that you're tempted to get involved in. Rather than staying stuck in this apparent impasse, open your mind to the infinite number of possibilities that are before you and make a choice. Don't limit yourself to the mundane world, but instead be willing to explore other dimensions and realities. It's time to write creatively without limits of tradition or habit, allowing yourself to be inspired by nature. Wow. Well, I both didn't do all that at the time, but sort of did do that once my friend gave me the missing piece. Have you ever like gone somewhere and you're like, I can't understand why I'm going here, but something tells you it's important. Yeah, I just go with it now because I trust my feelings. So um, it can be weird, but I just have this feeling like it could be like, you need to go to that CVS over there. Well, in my case, like one of my dear friends, somebody told me she was pissed at me. And I said, why? And they said, because she goes to all your parties and you never go to hers. She was, had been a former sponsee in AA. And so I called her and I made plans to go see her like the very next night she lived quite a ways away. She'd bought in a house. And so I was driving there and I just had the sense like, this is right. This is important. This is good. I saw her, we had dinner. Uh, she, she had bought all this vegetarian takeout for me and stuff. And, and I remember she showed me her welding mask and she put it on and I had a sense like, Ooh, something bad, something bad about that welding mask. And her house had been robbed. And somehow I thought it had to do with like the robbers were going to come back. But anyway, we said we loved each other. We gave each other hugs. We parted. And that the, the following Monday, she, she was killed on the job. She had on her welding mask and she stood up on the job and the guy operating the crane didn't have a spotter and he dashed her brains out with the hook. And so like I had gotten to make things right with her and tell her that I loved her. I want to tell you some more stuff about me and my angel. So this one I've never told before either. So um, I, uh, I got diagnosed with cancer uh, in 2012, late 2012 with breast cancer. My sister had died from breast cancer and mine was, uh, turned out to be a much slower growing one, but it was still a terrifying time. And at, just before I got the cancer diagnosis, I wrote my addiction memoir. And by the way, don't buy the book, don't buy the addiction memoir, unless you're interested in alcoholism, because it's like, it's my story. Like you tell at a speaker's meeting, you tell your story. It's mm -hmm. my story in, in 500 pages. So you really have to be interested in alcoholism if you want to get it. Um, but my family was up in arms about it because in it, I said my father was an alcoholic and I said some things about our family that they found both untrue and, and, and made them angry. So it was a horrible time and I was going to Al-Anon to try to get some distance on my family. And I left a meeting and it was raining. 
and meeting was on top of Queen Anne Hill in Seattle, which is the highest hill, no, maybe second highest, but anyway, one of the highest hills in Seattle is very steep going down, uh, very steep, this road called Dravis. And uh, so that was my way home. And I just turned a corner and, and I touched the brakes and they felt a tiny bit soft, like just a tiny bit. And what I didn't know happened then was that I cracked the old rubber tubes in the, in the brake system and the brake fluid was all draining out. I had no idea. I just thought they felt a tiny bit soft. Maybe I'll get them checked. Mm -hmm. Angel comes along and he says, you have no brakes. Do not go down Dravis. And I'm like, it's raining. It's cold out. And I have a hairdressing appointment. It, I'm not going to do what you say. He comes again. You have no brakes. I'm like, of course I have brakes. And then I see the sign that says arterial turn, but it's not quite where it usually is. It's like a big arrow arterial turn. So I'm like, what is that? Am I there yet? And then he goes, yes, that's the turn. That's the turn, turn. So I turn and I'm on a tiny little side street that's flat. And I go to put my brakes on and there's nothing. All the brake fluid has drained out. There's nothing. So the tiny slope of this residential flat street on top of Queen Anne, I roll along until I come to a stop kind of near the curb. So once again, I say to him, I'm sorry. So what he had done was actually commandeered my brain. Mate, I went back and looked. It was the back of a freaking no parking sign. The back of it that he turned into arterial turns. Wow. <laughs> it, there, it, it was, I mean, the, the real sign was another two blocks ahead, but he, he stopped me and he, he made me turn. And um, so he, 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 he wants me, I don't know what I'm supposed to do, but he, he really wants me around. And um, well, he's doing his job, but you better be careful when you get in a car. <laughs> you had a lot of uh, near misses in the car I a lot of near so I'm trying to think uh, of what other stories so the one that I, I told you I have not ever spoken about and I don't know quite what to make of is my I did a past life regression recently with uh, his name is Zach Tavkar he operates out of Reno and he's a he's a life coach and a and a he does the, oh, what is that method of, it's a woman who wrote a lot of books on. Uh, Story, Ver oh, no, 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 De Dolores Cannon? Yes. He's yeah. He's taken her yeah. courses uh, that are online now. She's so dead. it's like QH. Yeah, 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 yeah. HT yeah. or some quantum something type That's of hypnotherapy for. Okay. Right, but it was during COVID, so we had to do it uh, over FaceTime. But anyway, you know, he he, he put me in a trance. And the, the thing that's funny about being hypnotized is, for me anyway, I'm aware in both ways. I'm both in the hypnotized world, and I'm still lying on my couch at the yeah. same time. Me too. That's how I am too. Yeah. So, so the first place he asked me about, I was very doubtful that it was real, or was I just imagining it? And it was, you know, I saw tile roofs and I was in looking in through the doorway of this house that was empty, completely empty. And uh, he eventually, you know, he asked me, I, I said, this is where we used to live. And but then I said, we knew that they were coming and we had to leave 
And we, we didn't want to leave. We all had to flee. And I just started bawling. I felt this huge loss of, of having lost my village, having lost my home. And um, I was a guy, I looked down and I had uh, sandals on and, and very kind of hairy feet, you know, it was, and again, I didn't know that was, I couldn't see how this was real. But I think now that I, I um, that the Romans were coming and anyway, we fled. And, and um, it was, it was a scary thing, but I still was like, I don't quite believe this is really a past life. The next one aligned with a memory. So in the next one, um, I was a young boy uh, somewhere in uh, the Pacific Islands, Malaysia, somewhere around there. And I, uh, I was really good at jumping off the boat and untangling our nets. And so I had all this pride in that. I was out with my uncle and my, you know, just a big group of the, the men in our, um, I don't know, family. But it, see, when I was very little, um, my family took a trip around the world and we had gone out to the boat people and you could throw coins and they would dive for them. And I was only three, but I remember seeing this boy dive for the coins and we were saying how good he was at it. I had slight awareness of my Western privilege, even at that young age. But what I felt more was, I can do that. I can do that. It, I'm really good at it. Just let me at it. Let me jump on <laughs> And that was a weird, but it was a memory. Mm -hmm. of having lived that life and it's it's always stayed with me but then he took me through a couple more lives and I always had this doubt how do I know it's real how do I know it's real so there's this uh series that was on Netflix that was called something like life after death do you have you seen that and mm -hmm. there's a medium that they spend actually two shows on and when she's channeling people her voice changes so sometimes she talks like this and other times she talks like this and I remember being embarrassed watching the show and thinking she's just changing her voice you know just like for a puppet show or something like that's so dumb oh I wish they hadn't put this in the show everybody's gonna know she's bogus I know she's bogus but when he called this last life my voice kept dropping in my throat and I would talk like this. And I started laughing. Louisa on the couch started laughing, like, what the heck is happening? I have a recording of it, and I'm trying to bring my voice up, and the spirit is trying to bring my voice down. And so I go, <laughs> But when he talks, he wants the low voice. And I didn't, I couldn't believe it. So I was kind of laughing. And who he turned out to be, and this is the, I don't know how to process this. So I am a feminist woman. I am counterculture. I, I, I really feel that, you know, sort of um, capitalism has invaded our lives and made us into these people who weigh every cost, every part of life as a cost benefit analysis. And it's wrong. And I love hiking in nature. And I love climbing mountains and climbing mountains is just brings me such joy. And who I was, was this dude in the 50s, just before I was born, 
living in New York City, who was a capitalist, and he had closed this huge deal that he was super proud of. And I kept seeing the Warner Brothers target thing in black and white. I kept seeing that. I didn't say it to Zach because I didn't know what to make of it. And I did I was embarrassed of it. Why do I keep seeing the Warner Brothers circle? How how can that possibly relate to this very important guy who says he closed this huge deal? And the funny thing he said was he said, he said, uh, many people thought I could not bring this about. There were many obstacles, but I made it happen. And now I'm set for life. And I was like, dude, you're dead. <laughs> but that was what he made me say was now I'm set for life. And um, I actually looked it up later from around the time he was. And, and there was a deal that went down where Jack Warner had no value for any of the cartoons. He thought they were garbage. He thought they were worthless. And this little company called Stargazer Films, was, I know you're Stargazer. It was Star Something Films or something like that. Anyway, they bought all of the Warner Brother cartoons, Bugs Bunny, Mickey Mouse, everything. No, not Mickey Mouse. That was Disney. That's Disney, yeah. yeah. But Bugs Bunny and... Like Looney Tunes, all of those. Yeah, Looney Tunes, yeah. Um, they bought them all for something like $3 million. And they were worth huge, much, 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 much more. So I think that was him. But he. this was the weirdest part. We got in an argument. Now, this is me. This is me in a past life. But he said, he said, New York, it, he, he was looking out at his view from his apartment and he was seeing the spires of New York and, and, the, and, the, and he was saying it was magnificent. And then he said to me, what is the difference between setting a goal of climbing a mountain and setting a goal like mine? You still have to work and climb. And when you get there, you know, you have, you've accomplished something. And he was kind of putting down my mountain climbing. And I was, I wanted to say, no, you're, we're not the same. Anyway, we were arguing and we are both facets of me. And, um, and so when the near, I just, I can see myself being some guy with hairy feet who got, you know, driven out of our homeland by the Romans. I can see myself being a, diver you know I can see that that these other past lives but he even said that his friends teased him that he looked like the monopoly guy okay so he he must have died I was born in 1960 I think he died just very shortly before that because it was definitely 1950s New York that he was looking out at and like how could that be me I'm asking you, Tina, how can <laughs> we don't have the same values if we don't have, you know what I mean? Yeah. But every, every life that you are living, you you're doing something different, you know, it's like you're playing a part in a movie. I'm going to try on, I'm going to try to be this man who becomes rich off of cartoons like <laughs> that. And I want to have a beautiful view out my window of New York City. I want to feel like I conquered something. 
that I accomplished something. Mm-hmm. And I think what he was saying is not that your climbing mountains is frivolous. I think he's saying that no matter goal, but whatever goal it is, it could be huge or it could be small. It's worth doing if you're really passionate about it mm-hmm. and that you should believe in yourself. Cause it sounds like he really was very confident yeah. um, about himself. So maybe that's a piece that you can take from him. Yeah. From that lifetime, that confidence he had, like, he was like, I'm going to rule the world with my cartoons, you know, made, I made this happen. Cause see, he must've known that they were worth more than, than Jack Warner knew they were worth right mm-hmm. have sensed he was kind of getting away with something that that was but he didn't feel it was bad he felt like if those suckers want to sell them to me for three million dollars then great and that that was a lot of money yeah back then in the 1950s and look how many people have grew up watching those cartoons too like what a legacy that is Mm-hmm. yeah yeah today you know they're they're valuable so I think that was what he was trying to say was that it's the same uh sense of drive you know whatever you choose to apply it to that that matters well Dolores Cannon she's an author have you read any of her books I, I am reading some of one okay of them right now. yeah so I've read probably the whole convoluted series I think there are six books I think I'm reading Beyond Death right now yeah she's so she took all her regressions for the audience um she took all her regressions and wrote them out in books and they were fascinating because people were going into all these lives you know and even there was one story she wrote about a woman who was a a robot yeah and she and that the robot was made to do hard work on some other planet but the robot had a consciousness wow and the robot was sad that the uh, the you know the organic beings didn't think it had any feelings or cares or anything it was so fascinating (laughs) but she also says that Um, you could download a life, like not necessarily live that life, but you could like a library, you could pull the book on that life and know everything about it and almost feel like you experienced it, but you weren't really that person. Hmm. So that's a possibility too, that you weren't really him, that you kind of pulled the book on him and, Uh and was interested in this life and you could really relate to him in that lifetime so it's interesting too that I went to New York City and lived there that's where I had my near-death experience because I am from Seattle and that super urban environment is just not me in fact I had to leave because I was having so many panic attacks Um, but I wonder if the romantic idea that made me want to go live there came from him yeah it could have been and you said like um am I making this up but when I got my regression I felt these feelings that were so strong yes and you can't fake those yeah like I'm not an Oscar-winning actress so I can't like create panic and fear because I'm in a dark cave all of a sudden like at a drop of a hat 
So that's how I knew it was real because I was feeling the feelings of that person. Yeah. And that yeah. lifetime it is really real. If you feel it and experience it, it's real. Right. Like the grief that I just started crying when I talked about we had to go. And that's surprised Louisa on the couch. Like there's tears coming out my eyes and I'm yeah. feeling so sad. And then the same thing when I'm this guy and he keeps making me talking in a low voice and he's so proud of himself. I felt that. So yeah. So you can't fake that. You can't make that up. And why would you? It would take yeah. a lot of energy to do that. A lot of conscious thought and energy and everything. And be surprised. Right. The tears and be shocked that they're coming, you know? <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. So, well, that's, I think, enough weird stories from me. Don't you yeah. think? I think that was more than enough. And I thank you so much for coming on and sharing them. And if you could let the audience know how they can get your book, I know it's on Amazon, on Kindle. Well, the, the book that's out now, I'm, I'm telling them not to get, but I do have some interesting uh, YouTube videos. Either there's a story, there's one, an audio, one of my NDE um, and then there's a lot of the, and there's a story about getting healed in the wilderness. But main thing is I am working on a new book that will be called Die Hard Atheist. And um, I hope to get it. Oh, I'll just say, I hope to have it up on Amazon Kindle by a year from now. I'm going to promise. Okay. October, oh, yeah. 2022. That's yeah. the goal. That's the goal. Yeah. <laughs> so. Well, thank you so much for sharing your stories. I uh, really enjoyed them. And um, check out Louisa's book and her website. All of that info will be in the show notes. All right. Thank you so much, Tina. You're welcome. Bye. Hi, friends. Thanks for listening. This is your host of the Weirdest Experience podcast, Tina Clark. I also wanted to share with you, I have my own energy healing business called Stargazing Angel LLC. I offer energy healing sessions, EFT tapping sessions, tarot readings, and I also offer classes on Reiki, shamanism, and tarot and more. If you're interested in having a session with me, please call 843-695-7218 or you can email me at contactstargazingangel.com at gmail.com. You can also check out my website, which is www.tinakinneyclark.com. That's T-I-N-A-K-I-N-N-E-Y-C-L-A-R-K-E. Thank you for listening. If you have a weird experience to share, please email me at contactstargazingangel at gmail.com. Check out our website on tinakinneyclark.com. Also, we're on Facebook and like us on Facebook and share your favorite episodes with your friends and family. I look forward to hearing about your weirdest experience.